Hey, Calvary Chapel. I'm Lisa, and I want to welcome you to our Church at Five live stream um, here today coming from the Heimathafen Cafe. Thank you for coming online and joining us and celebrating um, the service together as a church and fellowship, even though it's not together in person, but from our individual homes. The text uh, for today is from Colossians 3, verses uh, 22 to Colossians 4, verse 1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. So before I give over to Sam for the sermon, um, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much um, for this Sunday. I thank you um, so much that we have the opportunity to come together before you, even if it's just online. Or it, Yeah, it's good we have um, the possibility to come online and do um, still do worship and uh, the sermon together. Lord, um, I, pl- I pray that you would bless each and every one of us individually, whether we're um, home alone right now or whether we're watching this with our families or our flatmates. Um, Lord, I pray uh, that you would fill our hearts with love and um, with patience um, and also with um, yeah, with faith and trust in you in this time, that we can like, let go of everything that is um, concerning um, and occupying our minds right now, and um, that we can use this time to focus on you, um, to focus on your word, on your truth in the word, and um, yeah, to really be built up um, together um, in this sermon. I also want to pray. Uh, for Sam, that you would uh, fill him with your Holy Spirit and uh, guide him as he is preaching. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, thank you, Lisa, for reading our text from Colossians this evening and uh, welcome from me as well. I'm Sam. I want to welcome you to uh, Church at Five, our evening service here at Calvary Chapel. Thanks for joining us for uh, this online broadcast and uh, yeah, as we sang just a moment ago, if you, if you joined us for the, the Spotify playlist that our worship leaders put together, uh, Yahweh, our God, He really is our source of life and our source of rest. And it's such a, a good reminder for us uh, in this time to confess these truths. And that's my hope uh, for you, that's for, for this week, for this time that you are experiencing our God um, as your source of life and your source of breath. So, we're in uh, Colossians uh, this week, again, we're going through Colossians here at Church at Five and it's such a a fantastic uh, letter, it's a short letter but it's so full of deep truth and also wisdom for our lives. And we come uh, tonight, and you would have heard the text just a few moments ago as Lisa read it, we come tonight to the two final members of the household. We've been looking at the Christian household, the Christian family these last four weeks and we come to the two final members namely slaves and masters. And we've been looking, as I said, at the lordship of Christ, that is Christ's authority, Christ's rule 
over family and household relationships. And just to, as a quick reminder to get you um, up to date, to get you um, up to speed, we've been following Paul's thinking uh, through chapter 3 of the letter to the Colossians as he works out the implications, what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean for our lives as Christians? And the Apostle Paul has been working this out for us uh, through this chapter. And he began at the beginning of the chapter by looking how the lordship, the rule, the, the authority of Christ extends over us individually, as individual people, as we are brought into his kingdom. And then how the fact that we have Jesus Christ as Lord becomes the defining factor in our identity as the people of God. No longer are things like our social status or our ethnicity the defining factor uh, in, our, uh, in our social relationships, but rather that we all together have Christ as Lord. And he thinks through how that looks practically uh, in the church, when the church gathers together, uh, before turning finally to look at the, the household and the family. And what we can see here is that Paul is showing us that the Lordship of Christ is going to have implications for all of our lives. It's going to reach down all the way down into our daily lives. It's not just an abstract idea here. It's not like the authority, you might think, of Caesar in Rome, who's very far away in Rome for the Colossians. And he's sort of an, he, yes, he's an abstract authority. Yes, you find his image on the coin, but day to day you don't really have much to do with Caesar. The Lordship of Christ is different. It's going to go all the way down into every facet of our life, into our daily lives, into every relationship, into every sphere of our lives, at home, in the church, and in our workplace. And we could sum it up by saying, as Christians, we have all of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. And we've looked over the last weeks at relationships between wives and husbands in the household and the family, very briefly uh, children and parents, and so now we reach slaves and masters. And um, the inclusion of slaves in this household code might strike us, uh, in fact probably should strike us, as strange. Uh, but it would not have seemed out of place to the original recipients of this letter at Colossae. Um, back in the time when Paul wrote this letter, slaves were often, especially in wealthier households, an integral part of the household and they lived together in close quarters with the family. And that's why this would not have surprised the Colossians that Paul refers to those other people in the household next to the wife and the husband and the children. There are, of course, slaves in many households. Now, in my um, experience with sermons or, or messages on texts like this in uh, modern evangelical churches, what usually happens is that uh, without much further ado, uh, the issue of slavery is kind of swept under the carpet, put over to the side a little bit, and, um, and these verses are simply applied in our modern context um, to the nearest modern equivalent, and that is of employee and employer. And uh, that might suit some of us. Some of us go to work and we, we think that we are really slaves to the company and that our bosses are slave masters. Um, but we have to, we have to admit, um, by and large, modern employees are certainly not slaves, even if, as I say, going to work is sometimes hard. So we need to understand here that this text is directed in the first instance not necessarily to employees and employers, but really to slaves and their masters in the household. But it's not wrong to draw out 
biblical principles about how we as Christians should serve others from this text. And today, rather than merely apply these principles to the modern uh, workplace, um, I think it's better to apply them to all of life as Christians. I, I don't think that necessarily we should draw out these principles and then only apply them to the relationship between employers and employees because that's not really the relationship that is uh, talked about here. Instead, we can draw them out and apply them to all of our lives as Christians. So, what I want to do today is to give you a sermon in two parts or a message in two parts. I want to look in the first part at the question of slavery. I don't want to brush it under the carpet. And then in the second half of the message, I want to apply this text to us as Christians. Because as the Apostle Paul uh, says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 22, uh, again he says, for the one or for the person who was a slave, and he means a literal slave, when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed person. But similarly, those who were free, and that would refer to us, we are free in the sense that we are not actually slaves, when called to faith in the Lord, are Christ's slaves. So, we as Christians, and uh, that means all of you who I'm speaking to this evening, we are, as the New Testament puts it, douloi Christu, slaves of Christ. So, as we say here on a Sunday evening, let's uh, run over to the pool, avoiding the deck chairs and the pot plants, and dive in to this text, or to the, to the topic for this evening, I should say, because we're going to start by looking at slavery. So, Slavery. Why do I want to start by looking at slavery? Um, other than the text, of course, speaks explicitly to slaves and masters. Well, those who have been listening uh, carefully these last four weeks will note that at the very beginning, as we came to look at these arguments for Paul, why the lordship of Christ extends to the family, extends to the household, uh, I laid out a number of reasons why we should understand these verses so right from, from chapter 3, verse 18, right through till chapter 4, verse 1, we should understand these verses as Christians as part of Holy Scripture, part of God's inspired word to us through the Holy Spirit, and therefore that they have enduring validity and authority for us as Christians. They remain valid, they remain authoritative. And so I think it would be somewhat... Um, cheap or even duplicitous of me to say that that's true when it talks about wives and husbands and children and parents in verses 3, 18 through 21, but now I abandon that principle when it comes to slaves and masters. I think that would call my whole argument for taking this whole section as valid and authoritative, it would call that argument into doubt. So let me affirm the argument now. These scriptures the verses that Lisa read for us a few moments ago, chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1 of Colossians, are of enduring validity and authority for us as Christians. And so that means I don't write them off as a cultural accommodation that can now be safely dispensed with or simply sidestepped by applying it to modern employees and employers. Now, clearly having said that, slavery is a massive topic um, both historically and currently, and I obviously cannot say all there is to say in this brief time this evening. But nevertheless, let me speak a little bit about slavery and then give us maybe some points um, to help us fit these things together and, and understand these things. So firstly, um, it's worth pointing out that 
slavery in the Greco-Roman world, so in the ancient Roman Empire, at the time of the first century, was very different to the concept of slavery that we often have as modern people in our minds. When we hear the word slavery, we, we, tend, to, we tend to think of two prominent examples. Uh, probably most prominently, we think of slavery as it existed in the colonial empires, the colonial European empires of France, for example, in Haiti, or, or Spain uh, in the New World, Portugal in Brazil and Great Britain uh, in the southern colonies that later became the United States of America. So we think of that, we think of colonial slavery, which is when European colonial empires took Africans as slaves to the Americas in order to work them on plantations and in mines. And it was a horrific thing. Or we think of modern day slavery. Many of us uh, are, and this is something to be um, greeted, something to be um, happy about. Many of us are waking up to the reality of modern day slavery, which is closely connected with human trafficking and forced prostitution or indeed outright exploitation. So that's what we think of when we hear the word slavery. But slavery in the Greco-Roman world was different to this and it's worth pointing this out. And I, uh, I want to give you a couple of points here on that and I'm indebted to uh, James S. Jeffers, amongst others, for uh, some of this information. So this is just a little bit of a historical look at slavery at the time of Paul. Firstly, the, the Roman Empire was a slave economy. That is, we could say that... Uh, Slavery was like the electricity of the ancient world. If you think about how a modern city runs, what powers a modern city, it's electricity. And basically we could say what powered the ancient Roman Empire, the cities of the Roman Empire, was slavery. It was a slave economy. Up to a third of the population may have been slaves in different parts of the empire. Now originally, slaves had obviously come as prisoners of war when the Roman Republic and the later Roman Empire expanded in the centuries, in the, the two and a half centuries before the birth of Christ. But by New Testament times, and you'll know this from history, the Roman Empire was not really expanding anymore. There were no large-scale wars of expansion where masses of new population were kind of captured and could be made into slaves. So most slaves at, in New Testament times were those who had been born to other people who were themselves slaves. The slavery, um, again, completely different to modern slavery, could be a way to pay off debt or secure a more stable life or even to climb the social and economic ladder. Many people sold themselves into slavery for a certain time in order to get ahead in life. Uh, Romans had a custom of freeing their slaves, particularly in the cities, um, usually by around the age of 30. And typically the freed slaves of Roman citizens received Roman citizenship when they were freed. So slavery was not this lifelong sentence or lifelong status, but it was more a transitory phase. Indeed, slaves were also allowed to own property and earn money and they could even own other slaves. Another important difference is that Romans didn't think of slaves as inferior by nature, but rather they had an inferior social status. And slaves could be of any race and they were often of the same race as their masters. So slavery didn't have that racial component. And because they didn't think of them as inferior by nature, the Romans didn't question the ability of slaves to perform high-level functions, high-level tasks. 
and slaves were often therefore highly educated, well trusted and could even rise to high social and bureaucratic positions um, in the emperor's administration. And finally, it's worth mentioning that because slaves were so diverse in both their ethnicity and their function, you had some slaves who really had it bad in the silver mines of Spain, other slaves who enjoyed really high position in the emperor's household in Rome. Uh, Many slaves were basically company managers, the equivalent of company company manager. Because there was just this diversity across the board, there was no concept of there is this group of slaves, this oppressed minority in the sense of all the slaves should get together and revolt and fight for their freedom. It was just far too diverse. Now, having made these five points, and the reason I'm making them is to differentiate ancient slavery from modern slavery or from the slavery of the European colonial era, um, is so that we understand this difference. That's not to say that Greco-Roman slavery was a paradise of harmony and respect for human rights. It was still slavery. And depending on when and where you were a slave, it could be a horrific experience. As I said, those in the silver mines of Spain had it particularly tough. But it is wrong to read our modern view of slavery into the biblical texts, into texts like Colossians chapter 3. So, what was the now? So, so that's give us, given us a little bit of an overview of, of slavery back in, in the, the first century. What was the ancient Christian response to slavery? What was the ancient Christian response to slavery? Now, as you may know, our church, uh, Calvary Chapel in Freiburg, we partner with IJM, and that is uh, International Justice Mission. And we partner with them because we do see it as a gospel issue that we as Christians today be working towards the end of slavery in our world. And so uh, IJM uh, uh, has an annual Sunday, they call it Freedom Sunday, where they invite churches to talk about slavery on that Sunday and talk about what the Bible has to say about slavery or against slavery. And I've twice preached messages on Freedom Sundays arguing why slavery is fundamentally incompatible with biblical teaching. And I can refer you to those messages now. You'll find them on our podcast or the website. You can just type in Freedom Sunday and they should come up in the search. But let me give you now, and so I say that so you can go and listen to those and find out more if you're interested. But let me give you now the two main early Christian objections to slavery. And I'm indebted here to theologian Ben Myers for putting these together. So these are the two early Christian objections to slavery. And the first one regards the slave, and then the second one regards the slave owner. So firstly, regarding the slave, uh, Christians recognize that as human beings, our human nature is created in the image of God. We are unlike any animal, any, any other created creature. We alone as human beings, men, women and children, are created in the image of God. And so early Christians understood that there is something deeply wrong and evil in enslaving a human being who carries the very image of God. That is not how we should treat a creature who bears the very image of God, who bears personhood like God does, by enslaving them, almost by treating them as a beast of the field, as an animal. And indeed, 
um, an early uh, or an early Christian pastor, uh, Saint, Saint Basil of Caesarea. He says in one of his sermons to the slaves in his church. So again, slaves were in Christian churches at this time. He says in his sermon to the slaves, he says, "You are made of such stuff as nothing can enslave." What he means is, you are human beings. You're created in the image of God. You, you, what you're made of cannot be enslaved by its very nature, by its very being. In fact, he says, slavery is really only a name. It's really only a contradiction. You can't ultimately be slaves in your being if you're created in the image of God. So that was the argument of St. Basil of Caesarea, that our, our human nature, that we are created in the image of God, prevents us from being really slaves in our being and indeed makes slavery deeply wrong and evil. And secondly, the other early Christian argument regards the slave owner. And uh, there, another uh, early Christian pastor and bishop, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who was actually related to St. Basil, uh, he argues that there is only one Lord. As Christians, who is our Lord? the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one Lord or Master and He is the Lord of all men, of all human beings. He is the Lord. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And therefore, to set yourself up as a slave owner, owning other human beings, is, according to St. Gregory, is to arrogantly blaspheme against the Lordship of Jesus Christ against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's almost like we, in, in, in becoming a slave owner and in saying, I am the Lord of this human being, we're taking the place that only Jesus Christ should rightfully have as the Lord of all human beings. And Gregory says that such who do that, slave owners who, who do that, have forgotten the limits of their authority. So those were two early Christian responses to slavery. When it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament, this is important for us to hear, provides no justification for slavery. The New Testament never justifies slavery, nor does it ever endorse slavery as an institution to be revered or preserved. It never says it's good that, that there is slavery, or it's good to own slaves, or, it's, or slavery is a good thing, or this is an order that should be upheld. It never says any of that. Rather, the New Testament for its time, radically claims that there's no inferiority of status between slaves and masters. So not only does the New Testament say that there's no inferiority of nature, because slaves and masters are both human beings, both created in the image of God, but the New Testament also claims that there's no inferiority, inferiority of status between slaves and masters, that all are equal before Christ. And we saw that. You can look back up at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Let me read it for you now. There, Paul says, talking about the reality of all of us together under the Lordship of Christ, he says here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So there's no inferiority of status between slaves and masters. All are equal before Christ. Indeed, slaves and masters together in the church are to relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
further. The New Testament commands Christians, as I mentioned before, some people sold themselves into slavery in order to, to maybe climb up the ladder or, or pay off some debt or whatever it might have been for a certain time. The New Testament commands Christians not to do this, not to sell themselves into slavery. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul says to the Christians, you were bought at a price. That is to say, Christ has bought you, you are actually slaves of Christ, therefore do not become slaves of human beings. Don't do that. And Paul goes on and says, if you can gain your freedom as a slave, then do so. So Paul encourages slaves not to remain in a state of slavery, but to gain their freedom if they can. The New Testament further condemns slave trading or human trafficking as a pernicious sin. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And while we cannot be 100% certain a strong argument can be made that the Apostle Paul asks the slave owner, Philemon, to manumit, that is to free Onesimus, his runaway slave, when Onesimus returns to Colossae. I quote here from Paul's letter to Philemon, verses 15 through 17. Paul is referring here to Onesimus. He says, Perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you, Philemon, for a little while, was that you might have him back forever. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. And here in verse 17, look how Paul expects Philemon to receive Onesimus. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So, Having said all of these things from the New Testament and from early Christian thought, why doesn't the New Testament call for the abolition of slavery? And my answer here is that we are coloured, we are influenced by our modern understanding of social action, revolution, political struggle. These are all modern ideas. Um, they are foreign in many respects to the ancient world. And this is not the way the New Testament approaches things. The New Testament does not approach things in terms of social action, revolution, or political struggle. The New Testament understanding, understanding rather, is of the kingdom of God slowly growing, like the tree that starts off as this tiny mustard seed but eventually grows and its branches give shade to the whole garden. Birds can come and perch there. Um, this is the New Testament understanding. The kingdom of God slowly grows until it reaches the whole world. Take Jesus' words here in Matthew 13:33 as another example. There Jesus said, He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Hard to get in stores right now. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, 60 pounds of flour is a lot of flour, um, and that's the idea. The, the, the flour represents here the world, or the world system, or human society. And the kingdom of heaven, that is the message of Jesus' lordship, and Jesus' authority, is like a, a little bit of yeast that is kind of mixed in there, and it begins to work, and eventually it works its way through the whole batch, all 60 pounds of flour. That is to say, as we know from the proverb, a little leaven, or a little yeast leavens the whole loaf. So,
the New Testament understanding of sowing and reaping, of a seed being planted and then growing, is that gradually, over time, as individual lives and families are brought gladly with joy under the Lordship of Christ, that's what we talked about last week with the joy of submitting to Christ, uh, the effects and implications of that Lordship will be seen gradually across society. And let me add there, that is something that I appreciate about uh, IJM. Not that any human organisation is perfect, is that IJM, uh, International Justice Mission, they are not necessarily organising huge marches and demonstrations to demand social action and social change. But they are working in country, in many of these countries where modern slavery takes place or um, origin countries for human trafficking, and they're working in country at a grassroots level, often case by case, uh, educating, supporting and existing uh, and, and, and assisting existing structures. So that's the New Testament approach. So to think that the New Testament will give us a, an, a social call to abolish slavery is, I think, to misunderstand both history and the New Testament understanding of how change really takes place. So, returning now to our verses here in Colossians, we're reminded that Paul sent this letter together with the letter to the Ephesians and letter to Philemon with Tychicus and Onesimus back to Ephesians, Ephesus sorry, and on up the road to Colossae. So we shouldn't forget Paul's words to Philemon, and I just quoted from them a few moments ago as we read Colossians. So as we read these texts in, this text in Colossians, we should remember that Paul is at the same time sending this letter with an escaped slave back to his master and asking that master to receive him no longer as a slave, but now as a dear brother. Indeed, receive him, Philemon, as if it were me, as if he would receive me, the Apostle Paul. So these verses, as one commentator puts it, in Colossians, do not endorse slavery. Quote, they simply address an institution that happened to be a significant element of ancient society, end quote. And just, just to help us again, going further, we should note that marriage is instituted by God at the creation before the fall. Indeed, family, the raising of children, is part of God's creation and good plan, again, right from the start. Marriage and family will endure as long as this world lasts. But slavery is fundamentally different. It's not a creation ordinance. It does not go back to the way God made the world and nowhere does the Bible endorse slavery and say that it's something to be aspired to or looked up to. The Bible regulates slavery but it never regulates or tolerates injustice. And as we see here in our text in Colossians, the Bible places this temporary institution under the Lordship of Christ. No longer are slaves and masters to relate to each other according to Roman or Greek custom or law, but slaves and masters in the community of the church under the Lordship of Christ are to relate to each other as brothers and sisters, united in Christ and indeed serving a common Lord. And both the word for Lord and Master is the same word in the Greek. It is kurios. So there is a play on words here that masters have their own master, namely the kurios, Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go back in history and look at the ancient church, you will see that the yeast did leaven the loaf in the ancient church 
and in the ancient world. It would be a mistake to think that the first Christian attempt to abolish slavery came in the 18th and 19th centuries. Okay, but now let's turn to our text in Colossians again. As I said at the beginning, we can definitely draw out biblical principles about how we as Christians should serve others. And again, rather than merely applying them to the modern workplace, we can apply them to all of our life. And that's what I want to encourage and challenge you with this evening in the midst of this turbulent time we're in. Let me use Paul's words here from Philippians 3, 12 to 14 to give us a framework for understanding this at this time. So Philippians 3, 12 through 14. There Paul writes these famous words. He says, not that I've already obtained all this. And he's referring back to the power of Jesus' resurrection, participating in Jesus' sufferings, deep stuff there. But he says, I haven't, already, I haven't got to the goal yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what my challenge to us this evening here uh, at Church at Five at Calvary Freiburg is I want us to understand that all of us as Christians are, as I mentioned before, douloi Christu, slaves of Christ, and that we are pressing on towards a goal, straining towards what is ahead, namely that which God is calling us to in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's words here in Colossians, I want us to understand them this evening as they're going to help us as we strive towards that goal, they're going to help us do that faithfully, do that well, do that faithfully, do that well. So how does this apply to us right now? In the midst of these strange and trying times, it's not usual for me to be talking to a camera It's not usual for there to be no yeast in the supermarket. Um, So these are strange and trying times. In the midst of these times, we're called to serve others. And as Philippians say, the goal with this is is spiritual. It lies ahead ahead of us. It's what we're pressing on towards. So I just want to briefly go over our text in Colossians again and then just draw out a couple of principles, three principles for us at this time, but not only for this time, but for all times. So just to get the text percolating in our heads again, here it is, Colossians 3:22 through 4:1. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart, reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so let's draw out three principles again for this time, but also for all times. Number one, verse 24. In all things, remember this, it is the Lord Christ we are serving, guys. It's the Lord Christ we are serving. That's the reality of our lives in all our ministry and in all our service. And this is kind of the corollary, the the other half of verse 17, just to 
a few verses above where Paul said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So not only would you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, but we're also doing it for the Lord. We're actually serving Christ with everything that we do. And this is basically the, the idea, this is the fundamental reality underlining the entire household, the entire household code that we've been looking at these last four weeks. Whatever it is we're doing, however it is we're serving, we're not merely doing it in terms of a human sphere, in terms of human relationships. We're doing it, there's a, there's a spiritual, that Philippians perspective there. We're doing it with a view towards the future, the goal to which we're being called heavenward by God through Christ Jesus. Namely, we're doing it to the Lord as slaves, as servants of Christ. And that's what it means to talk about the Lordship of Christ in earthly and family relationships. It's in all things, it's the Lord Jesus that we're serving. And so just think about this idea and there's not so much an application here immediately, but there, I think there is an implication that will lead to application in your life. And so I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit leads you as you think about this concept. Think about this, the object of all your ministry, whether that be in the church or in your family at home or in your flat share fellowship right now or in your neighbourhood, the object of all that you're doing is to... Um, give honour to, give, give glory to the Lord Jesus as your master. And so that implication as it kind of sifts down, as it kind of trickles down into the depths of our mind and our souls, it should affect the way we go about ministry to those around us, the way we approach ministry in our minds. Ministry is not about, ministry at church for example, is not about making a name for ourselves looking good in some kind of visible or public ministry. It's not even about getting thanked for cleaning the toilets. Ministry in our neighbourhood is not primarily to alleviate the suffering or help other people in the neighbourhood. Those are good goals, but that's not really what it's about. What we're really about is serving Christ. That has to go down deep into us. And... Uh, we often think here of Matthew 25 um, where this is put in perspective for us uh, by Jesus uh, when he tells us this parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, then the righteous will answer Jesus saying, Lord, uh, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? All things that are really in the forefront of our minds right now in the midst of these times. And then the king or Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's, that's the principle worked out for us there by our Lord himself. So that's number one. Number two, verse 22. There we read, and going into verse 23, as you serve the Lord, do it, what with sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. There are three things here and they're all related. Firstly, sincerity of heart. What is meant here is single-minded focus and concentration. That's what the root, the, the Greek word means. Is single-minded single focus 
and concentration. If you think about it, that's what it really means to be sincere about something, to really mean it, not to simply do it for show or to do it for image, but to really mean it and therefore to pursue it with a single-minded focus. If you think about uh, those who make great achievements in our culture, whether in the arts or in the sciences or in uh, sport, they're those who bring this kind of sincerity to their work. They bring a single-minded focus to pursuing great art, great music, great scientific discovery or maybe great sporting achievement. And so what Paul is saying is he's challenging us to have this kind of focus in the way we serve the Lord as we serve others. That is, really mean it. And I think there are two things that we could take away from that is, on the one hand, he's saying, don't get distracted. And this is really hard for us because we often get distracted. It kind of seems, although it's not easy, and not everyone can be a great artist or a great sports person or a great scientist because we often get distracted. And I, I suppose even for you at home during this time, it's easy to sit at home in your apartment and to get distracted and to not use the gift of this extra time that the Lord has given us wisely. So, so, the, so Paul is saying, don't get distracted. Don't, don't get kind of pulled off, the, pulled off the path, pulled away from the goal. Be, be single-minded. And, and that can, we have to have this single-minded understanding of who we are. We're serving Christ and therefore our, all, our, all of our lives are, are geared towards this purpose. Don't, don't get distracted. But, but also to be sincere about it means that we do it not because we feel we have to or because we want to look good in front of others, but because we truly mean it. We truly love Jesus and therefore want to serve him gladly and therefore want to focus on ministry. And um, we also have a healthy, this is now the reverence for the Lord, we, we have a healthy, holy respect and fear of the Lord. He's the, you know, our Lord is a God of justice. There's no favoritism with him. God can't be mocked or manipulated. You're not going to get by with a, on a technicality with God. Remember as, as children, you kind of, you take your parents' words like really exactly and then you'd be like, well, I didn't do exactly what you told me not to do and therefore I'm getting by on a technicality. That just doesn't work with God. With God, it's about the spirit uh, and not the letter. He sees things as they really are. He sees where your heart is, not just where the letter is. But he's also, and this is what I want to remind you of uh, today, so it's not that we just revere him because we have a fear of his judgment. That is a healthy thing to have. But he's also our loving God, our creator, our saviour, our redeemer. He has poured out his love onto us. And Jesus came, that was the outpouring of God's love, through his son, through sending his son Jesus. And Jesus came, as we know, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And therefore, again, our, our service, our ministry uh, towards the Lord is a response it's a response to his love for us and it's a response that we, that we minister not because we have to but because we love Jesus. It's a response to his love and out of love for him. And therefore, we gladly, we do it with all our hearts knowing that we do so for our blessed, our beloved Lord Jesus. And finally, number three for today. Um, your ministry in serving others for Christ's sake, as we read here 
will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This inheritance is ultimately salvation itself. But whenever we talk of reward, it can seem self-serving, as if we're only really doing it for the reward. And so I want to give, um, again, Thomas Akempis the last word here and listen to what he has to say about serving God. He says, Lord, I will speak once more. I cannot remain silent. I will say to my God, my Lord and my King who dwells on high, oh, how great and manifold are your joys kept in secret for those who fear you. But what are you to those who love you? What are you to those who serve you with their whole heart? This is where we connect here. To those who serve you with their whole heart. The contemplation of yourself is the ineffable sweetness that you grant to those who love you. And this is the supreme manifestation of your love. That when I had no being, when we had no being as Christians, you created me. When I went astray, you led me back to your service and you taught me to love you. And it is a great thing that I should serve you, whom all creation is bound to serve. It should not seem much to me that I should serve you. Rather, it is great and wonderful to me that you should see fit to receive into your service one so poor and unworthy and count him amongst your beloved servants. All I have is yours and myself with it, yet it is really you who serve me rather than I you. You yourself stoop in Jesus Christ to serve man and have promised him the gift of yourself. And so what return can I make for all these countless favours? If only I could serve you faithfully all the days of my life. If only I could render you worthy service, even for a single day. For you alone are worthy of all service, honour and eternal praise. It is a great honour, Thomas says, and glory to serve you, God. And great grace will be given to those who have willingly entered your most holy service. Those who enter the God's service, he says, they will discover the sweetest consolations of the Holy Spirit. And he concludes here by saying, gracious and joyful service of God in which we are made truly free and holy. He says, O most lovely and desirable service in which we receive the reward of the supreme good and obtain the joy that abides forever. That is to say, when we hear that we will receive an inheritance or a reward, it's not that we're doing this there, therefore, for some kind of material reward that will get something back but rather the reward we receive is is the inheritance with God. And we saw that in Colossians 1 verse 12, what that inheritance is. It is namely salvation. And salvation, as Jesus says in John chapter 17, eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son who sent him. And so our reward is in fact to know Jesus to know Jesus himself, as Thomas says here, to receive the reward of the supreme God, that's the supreme good, that's Jesus himself, and obtain the joy that abides forever. And so I want to leave you with that thought now that the service that God is calling us now to do 
in that Philippians framework as we press on towards the goal, it is ultimately for our joy. And therefore, my uh, exhortation to you now at the end here today and this evening is, and in this time and, and in the future, is go and serve and experience the working of the Holy Spirit in you and experience the joy of receiving Christ himself as your reward and let the, let the world know through your ministry, through your service, of the joy of Christ's Lordship. Amen. Well, let me pray now to conclude the message and then I'll give you a blessing and I'll let you guys go. Join, me, join with me as I pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your pattern of ministry and service that you gave us to follow and that you said to your disciples in John's Gospel, see I have given you an example. You'll be blessed if you do likewise or you'll be blessed if you follow this example. And so I pray Lord as we talk about ministry, as we talk about service this evening and for many of us, especially in a difficult time, this can seem like an added burden on us. And I just pray that that word, Lord, from you would strike our hearts this evening. We would understand this is not a burden which you heap upon us and ask us to carry of our own strength, but this is a blessing that you give to us that we might find true joy and true freedom in submitting to your Lordship, in seeing everything that we do in this life as from the framework of, of serving you, of worshipping you. And so I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit now that you would refresh those who hear this message, those here at Church of Five and at Calvary Freiburg, refresh us by your Holy Spirit and with your Holy Spirit for this coming week and for this coming time. Let this mindset uh, settle upon us and give us wisdom as we serve our communities, our neighbourhoods, our, our small groups, our church, our families in this time. And let us truly have that consolation, that ineffable sweetness that comes from serving you gladly, joyfully, with a full heart. And we thank you for the reward that you have for us. Not a reward based on how well we do things or our performance, but the reward is you yourself that you invite us into your presence to enjoy relationship with you evermore. We long to hear those words, Lord, from your mouth. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray that you would work it in us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this Sunday evening online broadcast. I want to wish you God's blessing for the coming week. And uh, I hope you have good discussions in your small groups uh, this week and we'll definitely see you uh, next week as we continue through the Colossians, through the letter to the Colossians. And let me finish now with a blessing. Uh, the blessing uh, this evening comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a blessed week and again, see you next Sunday.